I was in Paris about two months ago. And it was just a little vacation. I was on the East Coast. I had seven days off. I said, well, I'll just go over there and I'll go to Paris. But let me give you a warning. If you're going over there, here's an example. Chapeau means hat. Oof means egg. It's like those French have a different word for everything. Oh, God. That's Steve Martin from his 1978 album, A Wild and Crazy Guy. And I've got a French word for you, too. It's commune, which in France isn't a place for hippies to go digging in the dirt, but rather just another word for township or municipality. Our show today starts with two French communes, namely Contrexaville and Vittel, because these two have some of the cleanest, purest water in all of Europe, but they also almost didn't. Up until 1992, the farms here, like those across Europe and around the world, had been dribbling pesticide and cow poop into the water, while homeowners and businessmen had been doing the same for crude oil and other pollutants. But then the communes undertook a massive environmental overhaul. Farmers started getting rid of their cows and weaning themselves off of pesticides by rotating their crops in ways that didn't give bugs a chance. Homeowners and businesses started digging up their oil tanks and replacing them with natural gas installations. Today, more than 90% of the land in both communes is under some sort of environmental protection. But this overhaul wasn't led by environmental regulators. It was led by a private company with a very clear incentive. The company was Swiss food giant and perpetual water bad boy Nestle. And its incentive was the fact that its lucrative Vittel contracts and Epar mineral waters were only lucrative because they're certified as natural. To keep that certification, they had to clean up the rivers that feed the aquifer that in turn feeds the springs that the waters gurgle up from. The stakes were high enough, or in economic terms, the incentives were strong enough for Nestle to create a separate consultancy called AgriVer which spent about 25 million euros to help farmers change the way they manage their land. Nestle still pays those farmers about 200 euros per hectare per year to keep things natural because it's worth it for them to do so. Of course, the obvious question is, would it still be worthwhile if there weren't such a thing as certification for mineral waters? The answer, probably not. But there's a second question. What if the incentives exist, but no one knows how to use them. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. 
And today we address it by speaking with my ecosystem marketplace colleague, Genevieve Bennett, who's spent much of the past year working with a European group called Ecostar to identify all of the various financing mechanisms available for Europeans who want to manage land more sustainably. Echostar is about to launch a series of accredited online university courses for green entrepreneurs, be they watershed managers, organic farmers, or river restorers, to help them understand both the business and science side of sustainable land management. If you're an environmentalist with an entrepreneurial bent, then today's show is for you. Before diving into today's interview, I wanted to welcome our two newest patrons, Holger Schwendler of Germany and Marcus Toussaint of Belgium. Both have joined at the $5 per episode level, and I'm quite appreciative. You can support us as well by giving us a good rating on iTunes or becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com for as little as $1 per month. I'll tell you more about that at the close of the show. But first, I wanted to tell you a little bit about where my questions on today's show are coming from. Because I didn't realize until listening to it that I was assuming some knowledge on your part that you might not have. Specifically, I'm coming from a U.S. perspective, and some of my early questions won't make sense to you if you don't know how the U.S. system works. Now, I know the United States gets a bad rap these days, and with good reason. We've elected an imbecile who's in the process of gutting the Environmental Protection Agency, ostensibly to create jobs. I'll concede that Donald Trump's policies, for lack of a better word, might boost profits for some of the coal and cattle companies that support him, but they probably destroy more jobs than they create. That's because profits aren't jobs. In fact, Profits are often the opposite of jobs. Companies save money by cutting corners, and that often means firing people like the 220,000 people who make up the $25 billion restoration economy in the United States. These are people who earn their money planting trees, restoring rivers, and turning soggy, unproductive farms into wetlands that filter water, purify air, and slow climate change. These jobs exist because companies and even government agencies that damage our environment are legally obligated to make us whole. Under the Endangered Species Act, for example, a local government that wants to build a road through sensitive habitat must first petition the Fish and Wildlife Service for permission to do so. If permission is granted, the entity still has to leave the habitat better than it found it. That's led to the creation of so-called conservation banks or mitigation banks, which are usually created by green entrepreneurs who identify marginal land and restore it to a stable state that performs ecosystem services like flood control or water purification. These mitigation bankers make money by selling credits to entities that get permission to break things. I really should do a whole series of podcasts on mitigation banking in the United States. It's a fascinating subject, and the banks have actually led to the creation of healthier, more contiguous ecosystems. But today, we're looking at Europe. I just wanted to give you that brief intro to mitigation banking, because if you don't know where I'm coming from when you hear the questions I'm asking Jen, 
those questions won't really make a lot of sense. Also, something you should know. Jen didn't realize we were talking for the podcast. She thought we were just touching base to go over the story that I was working on. But she's a trooper, and she stuck with it, and I think we had a really fun, relaxed, and informative conversation. Now, my interview with Jen Bennett. So now you've got these these three separate reports. One's on biodiversity, one's on water, one's on carbon. And there's a lot of detail in these. And I'm wondering if you could help us understand the essence of what you found in a way that people who are new to this stuff will understand it. And then I'd, I'd encourage listeners to explore them on their own or to check out the stories that we'll be rolling out on Ecosystem Marketplace. And I want to make it very clear to listeners that you're looking at finance, which I've always felt is the most important but underreported aspect of conservation because you know bad financial incentives are creating a lot of this mess and good financial incentives can help fix it. And in each of these reports, you're looking at payments for conservation and not just whether programs exist to create payments, but how much money is flowing through them, where it's coming from, what it achieves, and in the case that I think exemplifies this is the one that I opened with, Vitell. Uh, I've written about this myself, and I know a bit, but you had a case study that went into a lot of detail, and I'm wondering if you could kind of explain the essence of this Vitell program, how it worked, and what it achieved, and what lessons it gave us. Sure. So um, the Vitell project is probably one of the best known examples of these, these investments in natural infrastructure that we talk about in the reports. And it is a project that is located in France. Um, I, I should note, actually, that it's Vitel has, has since uh, become Nestle Waters. Um, but basically, back in the early 90s, um, Vitel, which is a uh, mineral water bottler, was dealing with a lot of contamination of their groundwater. Ultimately, it, it turned out that that was coming um, from agriculture in the catchment. And the risk for the company was that um, they would no longer be able to label the water as, as natural mineral, mineral water. So what they did, and this was really innovative, was um, they actually uh, went to the farmers and said, you know, hey, essentially, if you will manage your lands in such a way that fertilizers and pesticides and, and herbicides are, are staying out of the, the groundwater, um, will pay you. I think these days they pay about 200 euro per hectare per year to farmers for doing things like, you know, reducing um, fertilizer application rates or, or changing the way that they're stocking livestock on the land. Um, and they're also helping farmers with things like um, buying new farm equipment. Uh, they're working with with municipalities as well to, to think about groundwater quality. But it, it was really sort of an interesting um, and, and pretty innovative idea in that I think traditionally the response to, to water quality issues or water supply issues is, is an engineering response, right? You know, what new filtration equipment do we need? Um, <laughs> what new pipes can we, we put in or, or things like that? And so here they were actually kind of trying to tackle the, the problem at its source. What I love about this program is that you can visually see it. And you had you had some nice mm. illustrations in there. I think it's very clear and it's easy to understand that the people who get the water are paying to make sure the water is clean. And it also 
helps to illustrate this concept of green infrastructure that you talk about a lot in the report. Do you have you have a way of defining when you talk about green infrastructure? I use that word a lot, and I think I know what it means, but I don't know that I actually have a, <laughs> a clear definition of it. Do you have one? Can you? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about green infrastructure, we are we are talking about um, the natural systems that perform functions for us that we kind of normally associate with um, engineered infrastructure. So if you think about how a forest filters out pollution um, or how a wetland helps to recharge an aquifer or a a coastal wetland can help um, absorb storm surges. That's what we mean when we talk about green infrastructure. How are natural systems kind of performing these functions for us that we have traditionally, you know, really tried to pursue with with built solutions. And I do want to note also it's it's not a question of green infrastructure versus gray infrastructure. I think there um, you're probably much better off uh, looking at a combination of the two. You know, how can you use green infrastructure to help um, preserve the life of your reservoir or save you some money in infiltration? Um, and so that's what we really track most of the time in our reports are those sort of green-gray hybrids. And I'm quite familiar with programs in the U.S. and even in China and in Latin America. It's interesting to see that you have cities like Denver, for example, that are funneling their water payments into the surrounding countryside to maintain the forest because the forests filter water and they help to maintain the watershed and keep flows coming in regularly. Right. And in in Denver, it's also very much a question of uh, fire risk Mm -hmm. mitigation. Yeah, Yeah, because of the beetle, right? The pine beetle? Well... (laughs) You, you you could do about five podcasts on that topic, you know, what the relationship is between the, the pine beetle and um, wildfires. But uh, just, to, just to clarify yeah. for, for people, it's uh, the with climate change, the pine beetle mates twice a year now instead of once. And so they're getting they're doing more damage and they're leaving these trees in a degraded state. Right. Mm-hmm. That's in quick. OK. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. In, in Denver, you know, what happened was they had a, a really bad fire uh God, I think it was back in 2001, um, that essentially resulted in so much debris and runoff and, and sedimentation um, running down out of um, you know the headwaters above the city. I think they had to spend about $40 million um, to, to dredge all of that out of the reservoir. And so what Denver did, and um, I hope I'm not taking us way too off topic. No, but. no, no. This is great. This is really good. This is interesting. <laughs> You know, they, they signed an MOU with the Forest Service, the the, the United States Forest Service, which is um, the, the public land manager of um, a lot of Den- uh, Denver's source water areas to do fuel thinning to remove kind of hazardous fuels that had built up in the forest for decades um, to, to do some planning and essentially to reduce the risk that there was going to be another fire like that, um, that, that would happen again, another really catastrophic fire. Um, and from the Forest Service's perspective, this was, this was great as well because, you know, they know that they have um, a lot of restoration work that needs to happen, but the need is always a lot greater than the resources that they have and they're sort of constantly playing catch up. Um, after these fires instead of being able to take some steps to um, minimize them occurring in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like the, the case of Denver and the case of Vittel or Nestle and the Latin American um, programs that I'm familiar with, they all have one thing in common, which is that the water user is the person or the entity paying for this uh, for this service. One number that jumped out at me in in Europe 
was this figure of $5.7 billion is flowing into water conservation programs or watershed you know, management programs and, and, and all that, that that encompasses, but only 13.4 million of that was coming from users. So more than 99% is coming from governments. Um, right. And, yeah, I mean, isn't the point of these things to get the private sector paying its share? Ah, uh, well, that's that's another um, loaded question, Steve. But um, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, in Europe we will start to see more and more water users themselves um, kind of initiate these programs. You know, Europe has set some pretty ambitious targets under its water framework directive as far as uh, water quality improvements. And, you know, of course, climate change is always uh, the looming threat that's um, really making water companies, water utilities, um, cities who are concerned about natural disasters really take a second look at uh, risks to their water supplies mm -hmm. and, and other threats. We have seen a little bit of a preview of that in the United Kingdom where in recent years, there has been a huge growth in interest on water companies' uh, part to to manage their catchments because the costs of addressing you know all of the the, the issues that they're dealing with kind of on site are just getting out of control, and so they're looking at you know what can we do beyond the fence? Um, how can we work with other landowners in the catchment? How can we restore the green infrastructure that that already exists in our catchment? Um, because we just we can't keep up with the problem otherwise. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a growing idea, but it's not it, it hasn't necessarily taken hold. And I guess this question of getting private sector money flowing in is that just sort of my own false preconception on what on what these are for, or is it is it is it simply more important that you have transparency and clear results being paid for, and it doesn't really matter by whom. Well, I think what's interesting in Europe is that a lot of times it's not just the private sector or just the public sector um, who is supporting these programs, but you're seeing kind of all of the water users and all the stakeholders in a basin work together and they all kick in funding and they all sort of can collectively make decisions about what to do with that funding, right? You know, where, where are the biggest needs in this basin as far as restoration and protection? And so it's a much more collaborative model than um, just the private sector or just the public sector. There's always a concern and, and, and a legitimate one that um, you don't really want a, a private company taking the lead on making decisions about water resources management right, right, in your right. basin, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's that's a public issue and that, that should remain a public issue. But where I think there is a seat for the private sector at the table is um, contributing resources. You know, if, if you are a, a beverage company and you're concerned about clean water um, coming into your facility and you want to kick in some funding to help pay for that, <laughs> um, I think in the context of broader basin decision making, that's that's a positive thing. Right, right. And another interesting thing that you just touched on is that these member states cooperate across a basin, even if there's different jurisdictions, which I found really interesting, especially because that's been a big problem in the U.S., is that water bodies cross jurisdictions, and they can't even get the different states that impact right. Chesapeake Bay to, to cooperate. And here you have separate countries within the United, within the European Union. That is a very interesting part of uh, the Water Framework Directive in that it there's really this focus on managing at the basin level instead of kind of along jurisdictional 
lines. Um, and so that is requiring different countries or different political jurisdictions within the same countries to, to kind of all work together um, to come up with the, the body of knowledge that they need to manage the basin and to, to coordinate on management decisions. Those two things are actually really important kind of pieces of the foundation of a successful investment program in natural infrastructure. In the UK, oh gosh, maybe five years back, the government agency, DEFRA, allocated some funding, and it wasn't even a lot of funding. You'll have to look up the the exact number. Maybe you can kind of uh, stick that into this podcast later. Quick interjection, I looked it up, or rather got it from Jen a few days later, and the number is just over $2 million, which means DEFRA which stands for Department for Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs, invested just $2 million, which is a pittance in a country the size of the UK, in a nationwide effort to help people living in certain catchments. A catchment is the area of land that catches water from the sky and funnels it into a river, bay, or whatever. And this money, this $2 million, helped people in some catchments start partnerships geared towards promoting good land management. According to a 2015 report that Jen also wrote, out of the first 20 partnerships that received funding, 17 of them were at least experimenting with so-called investments in watershed services programs, which is the technical word for the kind of setup that Nestle is executing in France. The year of her analysis was 2014. A small amount of funding for um, catchment management groups um, to form. So basically just a little bit of money for everyone in a basin to get together and share knowledge and coordinate on decision making. And gosh, again, I should have checked my numbers before agreeing to talk to you. But (laughs) I think there, you know, if there were um, 19 of those catchment management uh, groups that formed, I think 14 of them ultimately went on to to support some kind of um, investment in natural infrastructure in the basin. She was close. The exact number again was 17 out of 20. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was really, you know, from a pretty small amount of government funding, they were able to really create these programs that are now leveraging a lot more money from water users for natural infrastructure. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, if that starts happening on a large scale in Europe as uh, the Water Framework Directive continues to roll out. Um, you know, it's it's still in uh, kind of the early years, so it's a little soon to say, but that basin-based approach is is really interesting and exciting. And I, I think a lot of people are, are watching to see how it goes. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm really curious to see how that works out as well, especially with Brexit and all this kind of... Uh, you know, right. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, it's, and, and one thing I, we should probably get into here, because you, you've talked about different European Commission directives and then, mm-hmm. and then corresponding member state laws. And we should probably just point out here, as I understand it, the European Commission comes up with these directives, which are fairly broad mandates that member states are supposed to then transpose, I think is the word they use, transpose into law. You know, so, so a directive kind of sets the goals and then the law tells them how to implement them. That's, in a nutshell, that's how it works, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I, the, the different member states do have discretion in sort of what, you know, how they get there. But mm-hmm. we actually, uh, in the biodiversity report, there are another to the, the birds and the habitats directives. Mm-hmm. And that whole kind of, all of those different pieces of red regulation we look at because they um, are drivers of 
biodiversity offsets and compensation in, in Europe. And it is actually a really good sort of example to pull out because the way that those regulations have been implemented um, in the different member states really does vary a lot. And so what that means is, you know, the extent to which national level regulations and, and policy frameworks support, you know, the use of market-based mechanisms um, to, to help meet those goals really varies a lot. Some of some countries have been much more receptive to using incentives Mm-hmm. to meet these targets or to, to enforce um, regulations and, and others have, have not. You know, that, that word markets turns so many people off. And, and I've seen credible people react to it by saying you're talking about buying and selling nature or, or selling licenses to pollute. And I'm wondering if we could talk a bit about the mitigation hierarchy, because I think that's really important. You can't just go and and break something or disrupt habitat or damage a wetland and then say, oops, I broke it, let me fix it. You know, you have to first make your case for uh, developing your project. Then if your project gets approval, you have to try and um, do no harm. Then if you can't do that, you have to make your case for doing some damage. And then you have to show that you'll leave things better than you found them. And only then do these market things come into play. They're they're like a last resort. And, and that's the mitigation hierarchy. Now, um, I know that the mitigation hierarchy is written into the Convention on Biological Diversity. I know that it's, or I know how it's actually implemented in the United States, but I'm not sure if it's manifested any differently in Europe. And I have a feeling you can explain first the basics better than I have, and then maybe how it works in Europe. Sure, sure. Um... So in Europe, um, as in the U.S., and uh, generally, you know, this is considered best practice everywhere, you still do have the mitigation hierarchy, where if you are a developer and whatever it is that you want to do is expected to have negative impacts on ecosystem values, um, first you have to avoid it um, to the fullest extent that you can. And then after you've avoided everything that you can and there's still you know, residual negative impact, then you have to minimize as much as you can. And then after that, you have to do restoration on site. And then only then after you've taken those steps, um, if there's still residual negative impacts, then you can offset. Um, And the idea is that you offset uh, at a scale um, that is greater uh, than than the negative impact. So in the the end of the day, you have this net gain of, of value. So the hierarchy is basically the same everywhere, but what's interesting to me in your report is that you found that most Europeans do these one-off things, which is completely different from the way we do things in the, in the United States. Here, it's, it's like for like, and everything is transparent. So these, these mitigation banks create these commoditized, quantifiable, verifiable restoration units, and, and I've always found it really easy to write about them because everything is public. In Europe, or, or at least in Germany, where I have my experience, they have the same concept, but the process isn't nearly as transparent. I remember in 2009 or so trying to write about a German project up north. I think it was, uh, it was near Hamburg or maybe Lübeck, but it was way up north, and they were building a bridge over some marshland. Uh, I forget the specifics, but they, they compensated it uh, by restoring some frog habitat. Um, the makeup of the species whose habitat they were restoring was completely different 
from the species in this marshland area. The terrain was different too, but they concluded that the habitat they were restoring was more endangered than what they were disrupting and more valuable and and should have a higher priority. And for that reason, this deal went through. And that whole setup, on the one hand, it, it kind of reeked of the old Deutschland AG thing where everything is done behind closed doors. And But at the same time, I mean, I can ride my bike across Germany and clearly see that they're taking care of their landscape in ways that we're not always doing. And I'm wondering if you could maybe do a compare and contrast on these two different approaches. You're right that um, in the U.S., third-party providers of mitigation um, really have stepped up and and really dominate the space. So mitigation banks or um, fee programs where the developer can either buy a credit or or pay a fee to a program. And then that third party takes on responsibility for for implementing the offset, including legal liability, I should mention. In the U.S., you can also do it yourself, but the regulators um, kind of discourage that. They have this established preference for banking. And and the reason that they do is, is that you don't have what we call temporal loss, which means if I destroy a wetland tomorrow and I don't have my replacement wetland sort of up and running in, in a way that those those values are starting to come back for another five or 10 years, right? Because, the, you know, you don't just snap your fingers and restore a wetland. It takes mm-hmm. time for for it to come um, to, to start functioning. Then you do have loss of value, right? You have those five years where those values weren't around. Um, and the way a bank works is... Uh, that, that banker has done the restoration work before they can sell the credits. And so the project is already in, in the ground. And it also, really importantly, the project has already gotten um, gone through regulatory approval. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, if you're a developer, it's much quicker to just buy the credit from a bank than try to get a regulator to, imp- to approve your do-it-yourself project, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. So in Europe, though, we do still see um, it is mostly still uh, do-it-yourself um, or what we call in the report one-off offsets where the developer um, maintains responsibility for doing that restoration or, or habitat creation or habitat protection work. And although you know there are exceptions in Germany, there actually is a lot of um, banking um, municipalities run kind of their own sort of little, they call them compensation pools. Yeah. But in most countries, it's it's very much um, a one you know one offs are the only game in town. And and you know you mentioned transparency, and that was definitely something that we talk a lot about in the report because when you have third party providers of mitigation, you do tend to have better transparency. It's a lot easier for someone like me to kind of figure out where the projects are and how successful they are than when you know it's a real estate developer who's who's got like a mall somewhere and and they. <laughs> flooded a, a soccer field and called it a wetland. Right, um, right. And, and unless I have time to dig through lots of permit information and, and maybe even have to file some kind of information request from regulators or go visit the site, it's it's difficult to know actually what has happened, mm-hmm. um, whether, whether that obligation has been met. Um, that's not to say that, you know, there aren't a lot of good one-off offset projects out there. They're just, um, there is less transparency. You know, and then in the report, we really had a tough time in some countries even figuring out um, 
how often offsets were, were being included in environmental authorizations, mm-hmm. uh, which is worrying. You know, I think that a lot of people have um, quite correctly expressed some concerns about the use of offsetting to sort of rubber stamp um, projects that probably shouldn't be approved. Right, right. Um, and so for, for these to work effectively, you need transparency. You know, mm-hmm. the public needs to be able to monitor what's going on. So, yeah, and I, I mean, is there any indication that some countries are doing better than others? Um, I know, I know, you get into which countries are, are implementing these programs more than others. Maybe we can start mm-hmm. with that and then see if there's a way of of seeing which countries are being better stewards of the land, or if there are ways to see that in the future. Yeah, I think it's you know we're starting to see some efforts to improve transparency. Um, in, in France and in Germany, in Germany, regulators are starting to make more of this information available online. You know, you can sort of go and look at a map of all the offset project approvals and, and click on them and, and see the authorization and things like that. Um, in the UK, where there was a pilot of um, offsetting a few years back, uh, the DEFRA has been very good about um, publishing a lot of information on results from that pilot. So, you know, I think it's it's a process. It's, you know, of course, you're, you're asking regulators to do even more work, which, you know, there may or may not be resources right, to. Right. Yeah, and I think I'm, the number that I have here in my notes, I think you said that the total value of, of biodiversity offsets you identified was 95.8 million euros over, over about 20 years. But you also made it very clear that's probably very low because these one-off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, no I think that is. An enormous underestimate of <laughs> actually how much is probably being spent on these projects. But again, it's it's really difficult to to really uncover right. that information. And you alluded to something just now that also jumped out at me. That there, you had a lot of mitigation banking type pilot initiatives, but are, are any of them getting traction? I, I wasn't able to really get a feel for for which ones are actually functioning as mitigation banking type programs or or if they're all in this early stage well not early i mean the defra one i think has been around for, a lot of them have been around for a few years are they actually generating offsets i or are they still in this kind of try, yeah. trying it out and, and and there's been a lot of pushback against them too right there has been a lot of pushback and i think that that you know was something that has made defra kind of step back a little bit mm-hmm. quietly but <laughs> yeah but you know, I all all of the the pilots that we talk about in the report are still in pretty early stages, and mm-hmm. so it's hard to to know how much traction that they're getting yet. You know, we do hear from these project developers that they're still kind of struggling with the regulatory piece. You know, are are regulators um, applying equivalent standards for banks um, versus one-off offsets. In a lot of cases, the answer is no. Banks actually have to meet more stringent standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, of course, increases their costs and, and makes their credits a little bit less appealing to to developers. Right. You know, if it's cheaper to do it yourself, why would you buy a credit? Um, and that was, as I recall, that was the same thing that we went through in the States, right? The banks had much right. higher, they had higher standards, they had higher prices, they were complaining. And then the government regulators come out with this preference, this preference from exactly right exactly and that has completely changed mm. um the market you know I, I do see in europe some writers who i generally like uh, you know george monbiot at the guardian for example he's an excellent nature writer but he's dead set against markets and not just 
not just leery of what happens if they're done wrong, but completely dead set against them. And I'd argue that he gets a lot wrong, but he has a large following. Um, you know, do you get into the perception issue at all and, and how, to differentiate, how to differentiate between legitimate concerns and uh, ideological bias? So we don't really talk about that too much in the report, you know, um, although it's it's really sort of a fascinating issue. And I, you know, I don't think that it's sort of this willful wrongheadedness on the issue. I think that there have been examples of um, poor implementation. Yeah. Um, and, and we do talk a lot about best practice in our report. Um, and these are not easy to do correctly. Right. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, they really should only be the absolute last resort if impacts are unavoidable, but the project really needs to happen for some public interest reason. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of the concern comes from. You know, are these going to, you know, you hear sort of greenwashing a lot or, or license to trash. Are these going to be just sort of a way for developers to, to get away with damaging really valuable right. ecosystems or, or, or really special species. So I, I totally, I get where it's coming from. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm Pollyannish, you know, about markets and that they're a panacea and they're going to make everything wonderful. They're only as good as the, as the regulations to which they're applied and, and to the, you know, to the rigor that backs them up. Right. We talked a little bit about this cross multi-country single base in cooperation and we talked a little bit about how there might be efforts to bring more private sector money in why is why why is the public sector finance in that sector so high right now and i, I guess i'm i'm thinking you know, if you look that we we start, we talked about denver i guess if we look at denver that would be considered a user pays mm-hmm. system but at the same time it was a state-run utility if i remember right Right. And so it's, it's kind of like it's hard to say if it's government or if it's private sector, but it was the user paying. And I'm wondering if, if we have any feel for why that doesn't not so much what might be happening in the future, but why do we have this huge, huge, huge um, amount of money coming from non-users uh, to, into these watershed uh, programs? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of that public finance is um, linked to, to agriculture. Mm-hmm. So um, they, you know, there are these agro-environmental subsidies like that, common you know, agricultural program. Right, right. Yeah. And so we're not, you know, f- un- under the common agricultural program, you know, farmers do have to meet sort of this, this baseline of good practice. But if they go above and beyond that, um, they can receive additional payments for things like nutrient management, um, you know, animal waste management, fertilizers, buffers, hedgerows, things like that. Um, and so there's a, there is a ton of public finance for those activities in Europe. I mean, you made that comment that um, Europeans um, seem to be pretty invested in, in maintaining you know, their landscape values, and I think that's absolutely true. Um, I would say, though, you know, it's uh, the the level of of subsidy payment for um, farmers uh, to to protect watersheds in Europe is actually pretty comparable to that in the United States. Um, We have some pretty major programs here as well for farmers, things like the Conservation Reserve Program, um, Conservation Stewardship Program, where there are a lot of payments that are really specifically targeted at shoring up our green infrastructure. Right. 
Yeah, and so many of those are uh, so many um, of those types of payments are coming from the USDA, the Department of Agriculture. Right. Which is right. So again, it's the same dynamic. Just uh, it looks different at first, but then you look at it more closely and you realize it's very similar. On the climate side, you've mostly looked at voluntary carbon markets. Mm-hmm. Um, which are where you have companies, they reduce their emissions by changing over to alternative fuels and changing the way they, they handle their logistics. And then they get to a point where they can't reduce any further. So they go and they buy an offset where, where they'll finance some kind of clean energy program someplace else. And what was interesting is the European headquartered organizations, I guess it would be companies and cities and everything else, transacted about... 39.2 million tons of carbon dioxide, or the equivalent of 39.2 million tons of carbon dioxide, because that includes methane and all kinds of other greenhouse gases. But almost all of the money went outside the European area, and it went into Asia, it went into Turkey, I think was a, was a big recipient of that. Is that an issue? Is that something we should be concerned about? Most of that money is flowing to to Indonesia, to Turkey. Um, you know, the lion's share of the volume um, that we're seeing transacted is not coming from projects located in Europe. We did find a few forest projects um, that are taking place in the UK and Italy mainly. Uh, a few also in, in Germany and the Netherlands. And we do see those are actually getting much higher prices than those international offsets, um, but at much lower volumes. Um, and as for whether it's a problem, I think that depends you know, on what the buyer is looking for. Are they just trying to manage their, their carbon footprint and they're seeking the lowest cost offsets, or are they interested in, you know, in investing in European projects and, you know, potentially in specific project types like afforestation and reforestation projects where you can also get a lot of other ecological co-benefits um, that, you know, you may not get from something like wind. You know, and that's an issue, too, that's come up fairly recently when we're looking ahead to a future under the Paris Climate Agreement is that every country is going to have to account for its greenhouse gas emissions. And if you create a forest carbon project, if you plant a massive forest and it mops up carbon dioxide, or if you save a forest that was in, already in, in danger of being destroyed, um, it, impact, it impacts your national uh, emissions. And the, as a result of that, a lot of countries are saying that they might be wanting to promote domestic markets for their, uh, for their forest carbon programs, or, you know, or, or to, to funnel domestic demand into domestic forest carbon programs, also to maintain the forests that they have, because countries all like to have good forests. And for this, you know, one, one of the things I found uh, when at the mid-year talks in Bonn, there was the Dutch government came up with an initiative where they're planning to look for and promote Netherlands-based land use projects, either, either farmers becoming more efficient with their methane or people planting forests and, and then selling the offsets domestically. Is this something, I mean, is, is this something you, you know what, I don't really have a question. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just, <laughs> I, I hate this when no, I come I, in. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You, you, you have identified, I think, one of the really fascinating findings um, in this report, um, this sort of shift in thinking from offsets to climate. Um, you know, as you pointed out, one of the barriers to, to growing voluntary markets is this problem of double counting. If every country has its own emissions reduction goals, then that means that 
voluntary projects could end up sort of being double counted um, by both the host country and the end user buyer. And so there's actually a lot of concern right now in the voluntary markets that the Paris Agreement could really depress demand. Mm -hmm. um, and we're waiting to see. But, you know, what we already are seeing in Europe is that some project developers are looking at selling uh, confirmation of, of climate impact rather than actual offsets. Hmm. And what that means is there are a lot of projects um, that we actually don't capture in our voluntary offsets pro uh, tracking because they're not verifying projects against uh, an offset standard. Um, so, for example, in Italy, there are a lot of really high profile tree planting projects where the buyers are much more interested in the marketing benefits of tree planting and in the multiple benefits of forests than in, you know, the actual tons of carbon dioxide equivalent that they can claim. Mm -hmm. um, and so those tree planting projects aren't even bothering to verify against a carbon standard. And um, so I think that's that's something that's um, pretty unique to Europe. And, uh, you know, we're, we're interested in following to, you know, Maybe maybe that is that is one way around this double counting issue. Yeah, you know, from a marketing perspective too, that makes a lot of sense. I remember speaking to Mike Korczynski a few years back. He runs Wildlife Wildlife Works, which is a big uh, project developer that's mostly active in Africa, and he had said that just when it comes to selling offsets, companies have a real hard time. Thinking to them, thinking in terms of, gee, you know, we're we're reducing a ton of carbon by saving a forest or planting trees. But if you say, do you want to pay to to conserve forest? They're they're all ears. And there was there was another mm. company we did an article about them a while back. Um, and I forget the name. It was a it's a guitar company, a little small guitar company, and they they got their hands on some rare Brazilian wood that can no longer be harvested. They bought it. It was a tree, some trees they found that had been harvested in the 1950s and were on storage in Europe somewhere. But one thing they did to, to give back is every guitar they sell, you basically save or plant a rosewood, and it had to be rosewood. Um, and they, But they don't do it by going out and physically planting a tree. They buy offsets. They calculated the the, the the amount of carbon in a in a tree, and I think it's a couple of offsets, a couple tons, obviously per tree. They use the fact that these this rosewood project already exists down in Brazil, and they sell the offsets from that. So they they don't they don't have to prove anything or verify or validate. That's all been done by the by the carbon develop by the project developers, and they're able to say to people who buy a guitar, hey, you you bought this guitar. It's made. It's got some rosewood in it, and you've also done your part to help preserve the rosewood forest. And the actual, mm -hmm. when from a carbon perspective, they're giving putting a lot more in than they take out because there's, there's no way that the amount of carbon in one, there's, there's not two tons of carbon in a guitar. Right. But there isn't a tree. And, and that's not, but they're say, not, yeah. they're ahead. not talking about the carbon to the buyers, though it sounds like they're talking about the trees and the right. forests. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's something to keep an eye on in the future. I mean, forests, at least from my perspective, they're definitely a, a lot more charismatic than tons of carbon dioxide right. equivalent. Um, and, you know, from a marketing angle, maybe that's that's the future. Yeah, um, you know, one of the things that we, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but just to add, you know, another thing that we talk about a lot in this report is um, some of those efforts to, to monetize 
multiple benefits instead of just carbon benefits. So, you know, can we integrate climate standards with forest certification standards or can we align, you know, project indicators with the sustainable development goals so that, you know, buyers feel like they're getting this this whole package mm-hmm. rather than just a, a carbon offset. Yeah, that was an interesting finding from one of the reports that Ecosystem Marketplace did a while back where they when the sustainable development goals came along and we did I did a few episodes on those I'll I'll put them in the show notes I forget which ones they are but when the sustainable development goals came along there was there was this sense among forest carbon project developers that they could provide a a kind of third a third party standard for 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 what is and is not a uh, you know a co-benefit because in, mm. in, when you look at a red project, they 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 do a lot of the things that the sustainable development goals talk about. They they promote sustainable agriculture. They promote uh, gender equality. They do all this stuff already. And now the sustainable development come, goals come along and say, "Here's these was it 16? I forget how many specific goals that we sh- that the world should be aiming for." And a lot of these red projects were going back and looking at looking at those goals and saying, "Hey, look, we do 14 of those already." <laughs> it was I don't know if that's oh, that's panned out or not, but that, that was an idea that was kicking around then. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I know, I know you you didn't want to go into too much detail on carbon because you said that that was not, you didn't write that one, that was Kelly Hamrick. <laughs> I didn't write this report. <laughs> yes, yeah. so I don't want to keep, and uh, that was Kelly Hamrick, who we did speak to a few episodes back, and we'll definitely be coming back to her because she's also working on the annual State of Forest Carbon Markets, uh, or for, State of Forest Finance report, which will be coming out around the time of the year-end climate talks, and will probably incorporate a lot of the findings that are already in this one. Um, but I'm wondering, while I've got you here, if there's anything that we didn't touch on but should have, something that's important that you want to make sure we include in this episode. Sure. Well, I think one one piece of information to, to th- add is just that the, these three reports were produced um, as part of a broader effort, uh, which is called the EcoStar Project, um, that is essentially trying to to incubate more private sector provision of um, green infrastructure and, and ecosystem services in Europe. Um, and they're doing that through university courses, um, mainly at the graduate level for business students. And so there are going to be courses this fall in um, Madrid and Brasov and Manchester and Padova in Italy. And then we actually have a, a an incubator next summer for companies that are, or for startups rather that have business ideas on, on nature-based business. And so these reports were actually developed to be sort of part of that, that curriculum and that training. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see, you know, what those those entrepreneurs kind of do with this information, this benchmark. Mm-hmm. And it will be interesting as well to come back in a few years and and look at how things have changed. You know, whether this project has been successful in scaling up green business mm-hmm. in this sector. Yeah, you know, I know that Kelly Barrett did an article for Ecosystem Marketplace on that program. On um, the EcoStar project, yeah. Right, right. And I wonder if we, we might want to revisit that and, and try to generate a podcast on that as well, because I've gotten feedback from a lot of our listeners, and that's one thing that's interesting to me is how many of the people who are tuning into this are totally new to the whole sustainability space, 
and they're asking how they can learn more. And a lot of people have asked about online classes. Uh, I assume these are not available online, right? These you probably they need. are oh, actually. Okay. Um, you have to pay a small fee if you're not mm-hmm. a, enrolled at one of the four universities. I think it's about a hundred euro right. for a you know, but it's an eight week course. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it's it's fairly reasonable. Um, Ecosystem Marketplace recently put out a report on the state of private investment in conservation. And one of the real findings there was that there are, I think, $3 billion, $3 billion something dollars sitting on the table kind of waiting yeah. for for projects. Mm-hmm. Um, the portfolio of projects just isn't there. And uh, there's really no reason why that should be the case, right? There are a lot of smart people out there. There are a lot of business models out there that are working. Um, the the policy and the regulatory framework is, is moving ahead really quickly, and that's driving the demand. And so... It would be great to, to do another podcast on this EcoStar project. I think the, this accelerator is going to be really cool. We've got um, an impact fund from Seattle called Fledge that is going to provide seed capital to the entrepreneurs um, and, and try to scale this up. You know, they, they have expressed what we found in the report that they're, they're looking for good people and good ideas. And if you're a good person with good ideas, the Ecosystem Services e-learning course will run from October through December, and the application deadline is September 30th. You can learn more at echostarhub.com forward slash e hyphen learning hyphen course, or in the show notes for episode 19 at bionic hyphen planet.com. That's episode 19 at bionic hyphen planet.com. We've done two articles on this for Ecosystem Marketplace, and we'll be doing at least three more because I'll be digging into the water, biodiversity, and carbon reports and writing up something for a mainstream audience. But I think Jen did a great job of creating material that's accessible and easy to read. And speaking of accessible and easy to read, I'm trying to create content here that's accessible and easy to understand. If you think I'm doing a good job, then you can help by giving me a good rating on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you access my show. Or you can share Bionic Planet with friends or... The ultimate support, become a patron at bionic-planet.com. Because I depend on you to get these out. And I've set the patronage page so you can help per episode, but with a monthly cap. So if you think $5 per month is good for a five-episode month, you can pledge $1 per episode, but with a $5 cap. That way, if I don't manage to generate five episodes in a month, you're not paying for something you didn't get. And if I go nuts and deliver 20 episodes in one month, you won't get whacked either. By the same token, you can offer $5 per episode or 10 or 50 or whatever. I won't complain. And that wraps up today's show. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.